I am Marianne Eves, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. Marianne Eves made bourbon history when she left Brown Foreman and was named Master Distiller of Castle and Key Distillery in 2015, making her the first female Master Distiller in Kentucky since Prohibition. A year ago, Eves shocked the bourbon industry when she resigned from the Woodford County Distillery to pursue other opportunities. In this episode, I catch up with Eves and find out what has happened over the past year. The answer includes a circus, Broadway, and a new baby. Plus, Marianne and I discuss her visits to distilleries around the country, a deep dive on small barrels, and what bottle Marianne would pick from the store shelves. I also want to take a moment to tell you about a new Kentucky-based podcast. Are you thinking about how to make your home more inviting? Maybe you want to plant your first garden. You should check out my local friend's podcast, The Fixin' Vixens. Hosts Annie and Alex let you in on their gardening favorites in episode 6. In later episodes, Annie is going to show you how to prep your pantry for winter. I think you'll enjoy listening to the Fixin' Vixens podcast. Meanwhile, please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and to leave a 5-star rating. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting patreon.com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with distilling expert, Marianne Eves. Marianne Eves, welcome to Eat Kentucky. Thank you so much, Alan. Really a pleasure to be here. I guess you are, like the rest of us, on lockdown. Yes, I am here in Florida at the moment, locked down in an RV um, right across the street from where my mom lives in Summerfield. Well, that's an interesting spot. I, d- I didn't expect the RV angle uh, <laughs> to to that. I would think Florida would be a pretty good place to be right now, though. Yeah, it's not bad. We're we're in the inland, so not like uh, close to a beach or anything. But it's pleasant weather. It's not not a bad place to be. Well, it was it was pretty nice in Kentucky last week, and then at the time of this recording, it's cold again, and they're threatening with threatening us with some light snow tonight. So mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, it doesn't seem like what should be going on. <laughs> I've heard. I, I've got lots of friends there still in Kentucky, and, and I've seen uh, one of my friends posted what I thought was pollen actually turned out to be snow. Kentucky, you're crazy. <laughs> that's that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, congratulations on being a new mom and on the birth of Andy Lane. Is that is that the right? The name? Yes, Miss Andy Lane. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, we're having a blast with her. She's a, she's a great baby. What? So she's about a month old now. Yeah. Just a little over a month. Mm-hmm. So are, are you, have you recovered a little bit feeling better? Yeah. I, f- I feel good. Almost back to normal, you know, other than waking up in the middle of the night for feedings and, and that sort of thing. But we're, we're finding our, our groove and communicating pretty well, I think. 
Well, very good. Well, I, I have three daughters, uh, all of whom are well past um, uh, waking me up at night generally. But, uh, you know, it, uh, teenage girls have their own problems. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so something it, to look forward to. <laughs> that's right. Well, it, it, I'll just say enjoy this time now. Uh, but they, uh, no, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of fun. Uh, at all ages, and all ages have their challenges. So that's just life, I guess. Of course. Yeah, I kind of remember being a teenage girl. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, 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 but I'm sure you were you were heavenly well behaved the entire time. So. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so about a year ago, year ago in March, I actually went to hear you speak at Keeneland for the Creative Mornings uh, event that, that you came to. And that was, we were just getting ready, I guess, for uh, for Keeneland, which we didn't get one this year, mm-hmm. uh, sadly. Afterwards, I came up and talked to you a little bit. I'm, you, I'm sure you don't remember it, but I was asked, I was quizzing you about Castle and Key releases uh, <laughs> uh, coming up. And so, a lot has changed since then. You uh, you had an eventful year. I have. It, it, it has. It's been almost exactly a year. Um, that was a, a fun speaking engagement for me, the creative mornings. It was interesting. It was a little bit more difficult to prepare for because they asked that that you be kind of vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what, what our audience really responds to is, um, you know, getting the the real you the kind of the struggles or the um authentic authenticity and the insight of of maybe some of the challenges that that you faced and then connecting it to the theme um which was water i i found really um kind of fun but you know it's it's different to prepare for something like that than um hey marianne can you come and talk about bourbon or can you come and talk about you know castle and key which to me is um pretty pretty easy you know being in the industry now um over a decade i know bourbon pretty well it's interesting i i feel like myself i'm i'm still evolving i'm still finding who that that authentic person is who i who i really want to be and what i want to stand for and and things change you know you you bring somebody like a daughter into your life and and it Mm it changes how you view the world in a lot of ways and not necessarily in ways you expect. So that's, that's not going to change. I, I would, I would expect. So yes. Good change it, for sure. Is it safe to say then that you, that you ran away and joined the circus at, uh... <laughs> partially. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting. So I, I met my partner while the, while his circus was in Lexington um, let's see, not this past October, but the one before that. And my good friend, Samantha Four, who I, I think has been on your podcast before, she has right? been on this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Samantha, um, knew the clown in the circus. I don't know if y'all <laughs> spoke much about her past life. We did <laughs> but not discuss she, uh... clowns, but I'm, I'm, I'm very <laughs> she... interested to get this scoop though. 
right? So she had done um, some kind of photojournalism thing for the Ringling Brothers, and she was assigned to it and ended up making friends with a lot of the folks who worked on the show, a couple of clowns. And one of the guys had um, been working with Kevin for, I think, uh, about a year maybe at the point when they were coming through Kentucky. So he let Sam know that the circus was coming to town and she um, asked me if I would want to go. She said, Hey, Marianne, there's a circus, no animals. Would you want to um, come? And I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. I love the circus. Cause at that point I, um, I was already a huge Cirque du Soleil fan. Like I was in any city that I was in and they had a Cirque show. I, I wanted to go see it. So I was like, I love the circus. And the fact that they have no animals is bonus bonus. Cause I'm actually a vegan. And uh, we went to go see it. Then Sam and Kirk, who is the clown, and his girlfriend, Laura, who is an aerial artist, uh, we all went out for tacos and at Girls, Girls, Girls. And and Kirk actually brought up the the distillery at Castle and Key because he's an incredible photographer and uh, wanted to come out and take photos. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds very, great. Very photogenic spot, too. <laughs> Absolutely. It's hard to take a bad picture of that place. Even folks that were following me on Instagram um, would comment on the beautiful photos that I would just take with my iPhone. So it's impossible to take a, heart, a, a bad photo. But anyway, he was asking if he could come out and see the distillery and take pictures. And I said, yeah, heck yeah, that sounds great. And in fact, why don't you just bring everybody at the circus? So the whole crew came out the, the next week on one of their days off and Kevin was there with the, the whole team and I took him around for a couple hours, fed him some cocktails and he was just blown away and so grateful that I had, you know, treated his, his team to the, the day and um, said, how many people work here at Castle and Key? And at that time it was about 70 and he's like, well, would they want to come see the the circus? Um, if they wanted to come Wednesday or Thursday, just have them tell the lady at the door that they work for you and we'll let them in free. And I was just like, man, that's so generous. Um, yeah, I don't know right. what to say, but I'll tell my team that's, that's amazing. And um, we swapped phone numbers. I, uh, I'd intended to go see the show again because it was a fantastic show. Um, with my team the next day and I wasn't able to make it cause I got roped into a, a work dinner uh, after, after working all day at the distillery, I had to go inter- entertain some uh, clients that they were a contract distilling for. So I texted Kevin and I said, here's who's coming. There's about 10, you know, plus their families. Um, unfortunately I won't be able to go, but if you all get into anything afterwards, just let me know. And we ended up meeting out for a drink at bar Ona in Lexington. And that's kind of where everything started. I was like, all right, well, you, we just took a tour around the distillery for a couple hours and you heard my life story. I want to hear yours. And it was, uh, kind of one of those rare connections. Never, never met anyone like him before. It, it, was a connection that that really took hold then it was uh not something you expected or were looking for but there it is absolutely yeah i mean i i continued to work at at the distillery for you know another year and i say i was chasing him around the country chasing and being chased whenever he had the opportunity (laughs) and and i couldn't get to where he was he would come back to lexington he only ever had a couple days off at a time so it was it was a challenge but 
we were able to to get to know one another and um yeah so now i'm living in an rv with my partner and and traveling around the us with the with the circus once this pandemic is uh you know cleared up well, enough I, so that live events can get going again right like a lot of things obviously you you can't you can't do circus shows right now and i, I would think that that would be a real a real challenge for especially yeah. the workers who uh who ought to be ought to be busy right now mm-hmm. absolutely yeah everybody had to kind of go their own ways um the circus is is not going right now it's um, you know, not possible to have events more than like 10 people anywhere, you know, and, and a lot of folks are just self-quarantining, staying at home. So the 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 show isn't going right now, but eventually, you know, his, his plan is to start up again. It's just, it's impossible to know when that will be. Sure. I, uh, I of course, follow you on Instagram and s- saw you... <laughs> going around to different cities with the circus. And one of the things that you did a lot was visit distilleries in different places. So what, what was that like? That was one of my favorite things, Um, (laughs) you know, seeing Kevin was great, but also um, getting to see all these new cities and, and meeting people and connecting, you know, I, I have a, a pretty great social network, uh, network of people um, distillers and, and fans and in these different places. And it wasn't until I actually got out there in the world and started exploring that I realized how, how much, um, or how many connections I, I really had because I would post something simple, you know, going to get a drink in, in whatever city. And then all these people would reach out and say, Oh, you got to meet so-and-so you got to go here. Um, I'm the head distiller or I'm the owner of such and such distillery and we would love to host you. And, it was just so much fun to get to meet all these different kinds of folks and, and hear what they were doing and how it was different than what we were doing in Kentucky. And that kind of inspired me. You know, I had think I had been thinking a little bit about a change um, even before meeting Kevin, uh, as far as what I was doing day to day at, at Castle and Key, I, I thought there must be something more that I can contribute to the industry and I have this expertise in, in Kentucky-made products, bourbon in particular, um, working for Brown Form. And I did get experience working with global spirits um, here and there, but definitely a focus on whiskey. And I thought, you know, I could help these different small distilleries with the experience that I have, not trying to make or turn what they're making into a Kentucky product, but just with some of the processes and standardization and, you know, finding consistency and doing the the quality uh, checks and, and sanitation protocols and even, you know, simple safety gear that some of these folks, you know, they, they start so small, they just don't really think about the big, um, you know, OSHA regulators and and that sort of thing. So I was thinking, you know, I can, I can spread Kentucky around a little bit, you know, we we're always so vocal about Kentucky makes the best bourbon. It makes most of the bourbon in the world. And it's true. (laughs) Both of those things are true. But if I can take a little bit of, of Kentucky out on the road with me, um, that's something that, that got me very excited. Oh, I'm sure what, well, I was going to ask you in touring those places and, and, you know, getting to, 
try out what they're doing and so forth. What what are some what are some distilleries that uh, Kentuckians and others should keep an eye on that that maybe are beyond the borders of the Commonwealth? <laughs> There's a bunch. Um, I I should put together a, a list of all the different places that I went to go see. But yeah, just that a would couple. be great. Yeah, a couple that that come to mind that that really stuck out for me as far as flavor um, and whiskeys in particular, Woodenville in um, Washington State, and mm-hmm. then Oregon Spirit Distillery there, and um, I think they're in Bend or nearby in in Bend, Oregon. Um, just fantastic quality and and folks that didn't have a background in in spirits necessarily just a passion i wanted to get into the industry and found the right partners and you know did a little bit of trial and error but through their own learning process came to this place where they were making exceptional product so that's something that also inspires me is that, you know, folks that, that aren't necessarily learning from the same old, same old. Right. Uh, yeah, they're, they're coming at it from a, mm-hmm. from a different, from a different background. Well, is there, does their product have a, I guess, a noticeably different uh, taste profile from what, what you would find with a Kentucky product or is it, or are they getting kind of to the same place? It's interesting. One of the distilleries is using um, barrels that are sourced locally. So I, in um, in keeping with their region, you know, they, they wanted to make something that was more local through and through. And the mm-hmm. other Oregon Spirit Distillery, they are actually sourcing their barrels from Kentucky because they wanted to bring that, that specific flavor into the product. So it's interesting. Um, you can tell that it has had an impact the the source of the barrels and in the products of these two different places but mm-hmm. there's so many other variables that that impact what they're doing their grain sourcing the climate there the the, the specific environment that they age in how that impacts the 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 flavor development outside of just the the wood that they're receiving the composition of the wood and the treatment of the barrel but it's it's really just you know fascinating i i wish i had more time in each of these places more than just the couple weeks that the circus is is in town because i i would really love to to dive in and and get some experience with um all of these different variables but um now not working for one distillery i i have the opportunity to to pick and choose who I work with and have those relationships to learn and um, the time and, and freedom to be a little bit picky and, and flexible and um, decide what I'm passionate about and what's next on the horizon. Now, did I see that you were helping to develop a vermouth? Is that right? Yes. There's a brand of, um, um, they mostly do Cabernet. Hoops Vineyard in Oakville, California. They actually were a part of an event that I did with Samantha at Castle and Key. It was a, a wine and um, a female winemaker and female chef kind of collaboration. And I just happened to be there. We were hosting it at Castle and Key. We tasted some some gin too, but mostly it was the wine and the food that were the stars of the show. And uh, Lindsay Hoops, the proprietor and, and owner, 
of um, of Hoops Vineyard was there, and she had already kind of been concocting an idea of a way to reclaim. I guess reclaim is the right way to say it, but you know, the loss that they experienced, they have continued to experience with the fires of in mm, Napa yeah. and in, in those areas. Um, this wine is not really usable to go into their brand. They're very protective of, of what goes under the hoops brand. Um, so they have all this, this wine that's just kind of sitting around that, some of it they've been able to sell bulk, but others it's it's not been possible. So it, it's it's high quality high quality wine that came from high quality vines. It's just um, got this smoky quality that doesn't mm. um, meet the standard of what they they already produce. So she had an idea of of making spirits, and I got really inspired because a, a smoky brandy sounds really delicious to me. So we, we did some playing around with that. She also had some um, Cabernet and Rosé and some other blended reds that had also been affected in that same time in, in 2017 by the fires. So it's been really fun to try to distill all of these different varietals of grapes and see how they come out and then, you know, concocting different ideas on what can be done. So the first thought was brandy. And then uh, Lindsay brought up the idea of maybe doing a vermouth. And the last time I was out in Napa, we actually came up with a recipe that was pretty darn good, but we're going to continue to to tweak it because I'm not, not hundred percent satisfied yet. So that's, so that's and we needed to, at this point. <laughs> no, not available yet. Still, all of this is still in kind of the, the R and D phase, gotcha. but, and then, and then maybe also a gin. So, um, Lindsay's husband is uh, Indian descent and you know, the beautiful spices and flavors that, mm-hmm. that they use in their cuisine is something that I really wanted to bring into the bottle. So I've been trying to get Methan to, start working on uh, this, the, all these different single botanical distillations that I did and left for them and start blending them together kind of based on proportions that they would use for spices and different recipes. So I've, I've not actually done this before, but I'm trying to um, bring the, the ratios into the bottle and, and see what this happened, what, what, what it would create. So it's kind of like, if they were going to take the spices that they use for a recipe and, and put it in a spice blend, like a chef would, would sell, I want to know what those ratios are and actually use the distillate that I produced and put it in a bottle and see what that does. Do they have the capacity at the winery to do the distillation? Lindsay and the Hoops Vineyard is is just a vineyard. They don't have a distillery just yet, but that might be in the future for them. The first runs that that we tried out, we'd made some vodka. We made some brandy of a couple different varieties. Um, We're done through at a, at a contract facility. So not on on their property. However, the single botanical um, distillations that I did to start playing around with the gin uh, development process were done there at the property. So it's just some small two liter glass stills that I set up in Lindsay's kitchen. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, okay. Just to, just to play around with. Precisely. So you did a gin at Castle and Key uh, and you used some you use botanicals that were grown there on site is that isn't that right 
Correct. Yeah, that well, that was always the plan was to have all of the ingredients that I developed that recipe with growing on site. And it, it's it's definitely possible. I don't know um, what the state of the garden is still now, um, but it is, it is possible that all of those ingredients can be grown on property. It's, it's interesting. Um, actually, like the corn that ended up being uh, developed for one of the products that I produce there, it takes several years for some of these ingredients to establish and actually start producing. So it, it may be still that not everything is, is growing on site and actually producing enough so that they can um, use only herbs grown there. They're probably still supplementing, but it, it, it was always the, the plan for sure. And we were able to do lemon verbena. I also used some other lemon scented herbs and some other recipes that I did. There are juniper berries growing wild on the property. I just, um, when, while I was still there, we missed harvest. <laughs> I had intended to put down some cloth to catch the berries and I, I wasn't exactly sure a hundred percent how to do it. So I, I waited a little bit too long and, and, um, they wound up dropping to the ground before I could put anything down to catch them. But the juniper berries that grow there on property um, are very unique and have um, a really citrusy, like very bright orange um, hmm. aroma and, and flavor, which will be really nice if they ever have the chance to, to actually use them. Well, I mean, looking at that, um, that sort of that local flavor and, and looking at what Woodenville is trying to do. And, and even even there uh, in California, there all of these uh, places are taking flav- flavors of of their own place and, and applying them there. That seems to be a trend and I would think a positive trend uh, in different places. Absolutely. I think that it's really great that these different small scale distilleries that they just love where they're from and they want to highlight that in, in every aspect. It's so great and, and a great strategy really to use as much local as you can get the, the local market behind you. And then it's so much easier, I think, to get the attention of other markets. Right, you build you build a base with what you've got, but you know if, mm-hmm. if you're going to if you're going to be in Oregon or Washington State, then mm-hmm. to me it seems like it's you would want to embrace being in Oregon or being in Washington State, just like being you would want to embrace being in Kentucky. You want to be what you are, and then you can do it more effectively than anybody else. Absolutely which I think is what's great about what they're doing up in, in New York and trying to define, you know, a, a product that is there as a, like a New York style rye. Right. Well, you were at, uh, I think, I think that's, at, is fantastic. it, is it called, is it called Kings, Kings County uh, distillery? Kings County right there. They're, yeah. They're, they're one of my favorites for sure. They have the very, uh, the very nondescript label um, that, that looks like they just bought some Avery labels and put on the bottle. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a very simple package. Um, and I think that was kind of born out of the way that they started, which is, you know, very simple roots and they grew pretty organically over the years and have gotten lots of press because they're just doing it in, in kind of the, the same way that these guys out West are started with, 
maybe a little bit of, of industry consulting help mostly with the process and then have defined for themselves how they want to make the, the spirits and their um, different methodologies, you know, using the, the small barrels and um, the way that they mash and, and distill and how all of that process works. I have a lot of respect for the product that they're making, even though, you know, in a, in a lot of ways it goes against the grain. What, what are your thoughts about smaller barrels? I know there's some division on what people think about them. It's interesting. I, I have very strong feelings on barrels coming from Brown Foreman, who owns their own cooperage. So I, I came up in the industry working for a company that treats the barrel as an ingredient. It's not just a vessel, a storage container. It is actually an ingredient that adds flavor to the product and your flavor. It's, it's about, you know, at least 40, maybe even up to, to 60 or 70% of the flavor of your product, depending on what that white dog tastes like before you get started. And of course the treatment of the barrel that you're using to, to age, but working in research and development there at Brown Foreman, I had lots of opportunity to test uh, different sizes of barrels, different kinds of barrels, different kinds of woods, um, different, you know, finishing uh, processes and different maturation styles, you know, whether it's in a heated warehouse or, you know, in, in uh, palletized storage or, you know, completely um, left up to, to nature in, in one of these open rack um, houses kind of situa situations. So over the six years that I worked for Brown Foreman, I saw all kinds of different uh, barrel experiments. And when it comes down to me, the risk with a small barrel is that you're not getting all of the different chemical reactions that happen over time in a large scale barrel. I think that what most small producers are thinking when they go into a smaller barrel is that increased surface area means I'm going to get the, the same flavor in a shorter amount of time. And, it, and it's just not the case. The oxidation reactions that happen over time due to the evaporation loss and that headspace being filled with oxygen in the barrel um, just, just don't happen the same way. So it's... Um, potentially in, in not as balanced product, but that's, that's, um, something that each distillery has a decision that they have to make for themselves. As long as they know, um, you know, have, have done trials and are making these decisions based on the product that they want to produce, then that's, you know, totally great. Maybe they're absolutely in love with the product that they're getting from these small scale barrels, such as Kings County. They're making incredible product and, in, in little tiny barrels. Um, it's not to say that you can't do it. It's a lot to do. <laughs> As Colin pointed out to me and in, in a post that I put up on, on uh, Instagram, the quality mindset and the competency of the distiller themselves, putting great new make into the barrel and then having the, um, expertise and the palette to identify when, when they are ready to go. Cause you can leave, you can leave, um, product in a barrel way too long too. I mean, it, it, there's no guarantee that if you have a 53 gallon barrel that you're going to have an excellent product either. 
you know, it can still be, it can still taste too young. You can still release it when it's not ready. So there's, um, there's risks both ways, but I think the, you know, to distill it down. Cause I feel like I'm kind of rambling now. Oh, no. um, fun. It's yeah. It's uh, it's just the, the chemical reactions that you risk um, not even getting to if you don't give it enough time. One of the great ways to eat Kentucky is to live in Kentucky. I can help you with that. I'm a realtor in the Lexington, Kentucky area with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. If you're looking to buy or sell a home, please contact me at alancornett at kw.com or eatkentucky at gmail.com. Now let's talk more about Kentucky, its food, and its culture. You had one other, I thought, very interesting accomplishment during this past year, which was you were you made it to Broadway. You you did a TED talk on Broadway. What was that like? That was the most nerve wracking process for me. Developing a ten minute talk for this um, uh, Broadway presentation. I was so excited about it and just kind of blown away that they had even approached me, but. They they um, reached out before I left Castle and Key, and I said I, I already knew at that point that I was getting ready to leave, and I said you know I'm I'm so excited about this opportunity. There's about to be some changes in in my life, and I'd love to connect back with you in a couple weeks. So we got got back on the phone. I talked to the organizers and I said, well, this is what's happened. I've left Castle and Key. I understand if, you know, I'm not what you're, what you're looking for now. And and he said, you know, Marianne, I, I, it would have been a really interesting talk um, having you on as the master distiller of Castle, Castle and Key. But I'm actually even more excited now um, that you have this perspective of, of leaving Castle and Key. I think it's going to be an even better presentation so that that put on the pressure a little bit <laughs> a little bit too now but i expect it, something it, fantastic <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i um i got together with uh, my presentation coach kate bring gardner in kentucky there a, a couple times she is just fantastic and always knows the right things to say and and how to uh, inspire me um each time we meet. I got to know her while I was still working for Brown Foreman. So we've had a, a long relationship and she developed me from a very shy introvert to, you know, getting on the, on the Ted stage. So it was pretty incredible. Even up to the minute before I, I stepped foot on the stage, I was going over and over this 10 minute script that I had, I had put together, you know, trying to rehearse it, but not too much. Cause you didn't want to sound too rehearsed, but, um, and I still ended up a couple times stumbling over myself, um, just kind of like blankly staring into this. It was like a thousand person audience or, or whatever it was. And, and then those bright stage lights, I, I really hadn't experienced something like that before, but when it was all said and done, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I, I got invited to do another Ted talk. I'm not sure if it's, it's going to work out or not, you know, with, um, everything that's happening. I'm not sure right. if it's, if it'll still be held, but, um, Yeah. I was excited I'm, to get I'm up sure, there and, and yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that you will be back on the TED stage again if you if you want to be. 
was that uh, was was doing a TED talk something that you had thought about doing that you would like to do, or was it something that just kind of f- fell out of the air and and was too intriguing to pass up? <laughs> I um uh, I thought it you know TED to me is like the epitome of, of, um, a public speaking opportunity. You know, you, you hear of these folks who have, um, been on a a Ted stage and went viral and, you know, their lives completely changed. So I, what was weighing on me was the, the gravity of this opportunity. Like who knows what can happen after you give a, a Ted talk, how, how doors might open and, and that sort of thing. So before I was invited to do one, I listened to tons of Ted talks. I, I always thought they were so inspiring and informative informative and, um, I just had no idea that that was even in, in the realm of possibility for me. I'm like, who, who wants to hear from me? <laughs> what do I have to well, tell people? But <laughs> Well, lots, lots of people like to hear from you. You know, I mean, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned in the TED Talk, I mean, something that I, that I thought was interesting, that you, you, know, I mean, you started off talking about, as a young girl, kind of feeling invisible, having an invisible friend and feeling invisible, but... Obviously, you know, I mean, I went, heard you speak in front of a lot of people at a big stage at Keeneland. You you were on Broadway uh, speaking. And so, you know, you've you have become a, a, a very skilled presenter uh, and speaker. So was that was that something that was a challenge for you to do? Was it did you, did you was it sort of a latent talent that you just didn't realize you had what? How, how did you get there? I definitely had help. Um, it was through my development at Brown Foreman that really got my my um, confidence up for that even being a, a possibility for me as a career. You know, I, going to school at University of Louisville Speed School, I was an, an engineering student. I just sat on in my corner of the room, didn't really even talk to people that I, I was in class with. Very, very shy, very introverted. Um, I didn't like raising my hand in class. Like I didn't, didn't want people to look at me while I was talking. I can remember the first time I got in front of a, a camera while working for Brown Foreman we had already decided that I would start training with, with Chris Morris. And I was really excited about that opportunity. I, I didn't fully understand what a master distiller was. I just knew that it, it sounded amazing that they were going to give me that opportunity. And, and I wanted to at least try. So I was in the, one of the warehouses there at, at uh, the Brown Foreman distillery with Chris Morris. And they were, they were filming a promotional piece on the next release of the old Forrester birthday Berman. And I was just there watching there to observe, you know, Chris doing his thing, see what, what might be ahead for me. And they're filming him drilling into a barrel, just him. And all of a sudden he looks over and he's like, this would be so much easier if I had somebody to hand the drill to. Oh, 
Marianne's here. Let's bring her uh, into the frame. So <laughs> literally all I had to do was like hold the drill for Chris and I'm standing there. They have the camera rolling. I start sweating. I like, I, I almost like start hyperventilating and all I'm doing is, is standing there um, by Chris while he's doing all the work. So it, I definitely have come a long way from breaking out the hives, even just looking into the, the lens of a camera. But I, I, I think one big thing for me that that once it sunk in helps me feel a lot more comfortable in front of a crowd is the knowledge that people aren't waiting to see you fail. When you're standing there on on stage or at a presentation room or at a tasting and and folks are there watching, they're there to be entertained and they're on your side. They're not you know, maybe some of them are, are waiting for you to slip up or, you know, trying to evaluate you and see what the heck you know about what, but mostly they just want to hear about your passion. And, and I really loved bourbon and I was confident in what I knew about it and, um, excited to share it with people. And, and once I realized that even if it did make a mistake, they were going to forgive me and give me a little bit of grace and, um, that was a, a big turning point, turning point for me. Did what, how was the response afterwards? What, what did they, uh, what did they tell you at, in New York? I would, I mean, I, I would think speaking as a, as a Kentuckian that a New York audience could be a little tough, maybe. <laughs> it was really um, pretty interesting. Half the folks that came up to me after the the presentation were like, oh my gosh, I um, was really inspired by what you had to say. Can we talk about these big risky moves? Because I feel like, you know, I'm at a point in, in my career where I need to make a change and and how did you know that it was right? And, and that sort of thing, you know, just, just totally into the content and, and, um, wanted to, to get to know more about where I got the guts to do this stuff. And then the, you know, other half, <laughs> I had Kevin, my partner there with me and he's wearing his Bernardo circus t-shirt and they come over and they're like, Oh my gosh, this is the guy with the circus. I, I did the circus <laughs> way back when. And I think it, you know, that, that performance audience, because it was on Broadway and Broadway theme. Um, there's a lot of folks that are in that entertainment industry. So I think they were excited about, you know, just that, that last little bit at the end when I said, I, I run away with the circus. They were stoked about it. <laughs> uh, one of the things that, that I, it caught me uh, during your during your presentation, you, you talked about the science and the art of bourbon, or you talked about the art of bourbon, and, and I thought about you as a scientist because you you, know, you were talking about even consulting with these different distilleries. That one of the things that you're bringing to them is kind of a scientific expertise of systems and consistency and so forth. How does how does your approach to bourbon uh, or any spirit as as a as a trained scientist how does that fit in with bourbon as an art it's really interesting coming at it from the angle of a, a chemical engineer my kind of preset 
tendency is to look at it very analytically and very technically, you know, um, diagnose uh, the different problems, look at it through numbers and, and try and figure out, you know, why things are working or they're not working. What happens oftentimes in making spirits is that you make a conscious decision to make trade-offs in efficiency or yield, things that would make an engineer, you know, kind of cringe. Like, this is not the most efficient way to do it. It's, you know, we're, we're leaving product on the table. Um, you know, we could be making better time, more money, this and that. Um, but you do it because if you let the yeast go a little bit longer, they create this one nuanced flavor that you wouldn't get otherwise. If you um, don't take the temperature and the ferment the fermenters up as high, you might not convert all the sugar, but it also gives the yeast again another opportunity to create some beautiful flavors that that wouldn't be there if you were pushing them to the 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 max and and stressing them to the point that they're going to just work 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 and and um, make alcohol and nothing else. Um, you know, the, the, even in the, the distillation process, it, it takes longer to run at a lower distillation proof because you're putting more water in the product and then more water, you use more barrels to go into the, the warehouse and all of that costs money. It's not as efficient. And, um, but what it does is create a different flavor in, in the product. So, um, working with these more senior engineers who had had the chance to, to kind of <laughs> um, develop or soften their scientific approach and looking at it from the angle of flavor versus just science and, um, you know, using the education that I had not just to save the company money or save the company time, but to create a beautiful, consistent, high quality, um, product. So looking at it from, you know, the, the perspective of nature and how the ingredients come together with the process to make these, um, really amazing products. Yeah. I've, I've listened some to, um, Maggie Campbell, who's a distiller at Privateer Rum, she's, I've heard her talk some along the same lines, because um, they, using using a, a, an open uh, process where they, they allow wild, mm -hmm. you know, the wild yeast to come in, and because otherwise she's not going to get the flavors that she wants, but, but you're also relinquishing control in that situation, at least to some degree. Oh, Totally. Yeah, I working for Ron Foreman, um, I spent quite a bit of time down in Mexico working at their tequila factories. And it's it's the same thing. They're wide open to the environment, those fermentation tanks. They don't add additional yeast to it. It's all natural yeast that actually um, propagates in the fruit trees that they plant around the, the um, hacienda. So it's a really interesting process. And I don't know Maggie, but I've seen a lot of uh, press on the things that she's doing. And I, I really, really hope that we get to meet. Um, I was actually sending Fred Minnick a text and I said, what is the name of this woman um, rum maker that I've been hearing about? I, I like tried to stalk back through his 
Facebook feed to, to remember her name, but I ended up just texting him and he said he would make an introduction, but I'm, I'm just dying to see if um, we can get together and nerd out. Oh uh, yeah. I would, I would love to be on a fly on the wall uh, with that. She's, she has started uh, a pod, a podcast herself recently. That's uh, it's really pretty, very interesting to listen to. And I mean, and I think you would like it because it's, it's very technical and uh, in a lot of ways. And she talks about stuff that goes over my head that I'm sure you would understand completely, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And she's obviously, you know, very thoughtful about, about how she approaches it in, in a way, I think that's similar to, to how you do. Um, but you mentioned uh, being down in Mexico uh, at, at the uh, tequila uh, plants that Brown Foreman had. I know you've talked uh, some in the past about having a lot of interest in Mezcal recently. What have you been exploring that anymore uh, of late? I had a, a couple opportunities I thought in Mezcal that were actually um, misrepresented, unfortunately, and, and didn't mm-hmm. work out. Um, I do have a, a acquaintance in, in LA that owns a Mezcal brand and was hoping to do some kind of um, collaboration with her and another product that I was starting to get involved with. But I don't know if, if that one is going to take off either. So I'm trying to find ways to get into Mezcal because it's one of my my favorite, absolute favorite spirits. I am just so um, drawn to these different artisans, the Mezcaleros and their unique um, processes from city, from little town to town and um, all this tradition that, that goes into how they produce it. And it's just a, you know, beautiful, beautiful flavor for, you know, all, all kinds of different purposes, but. Give me a good working definition of what Mezcal is that, you know, that we, as opposed to say tequila or something like that. I, you know, to distill it down to the easiest way to think about it for me, um, mezcal is to tequila kind of like scotch is to, to bourbon. It's a it's the same vein of product. It's got different regulations and also just that smoky profile. So the biggest difference for me between mezcal and tequila is that that smoky um, essence, which is um, a part of the process where they actually smoke those agave uh, pinas um, before it goes into to fermentation. So they so it's like peating it in in Scotland. Mm-hmm, in a way, mm-hmm, precisely. What are a a mezcal or two that you as an sort of an introductory thing that you would you would recommend to eat Kentucky listeners if they were interested in pursuing it? Oh, mezcal brand. Yes. Um, let's see. Uh, Del Maguey, I think, is one of the the most popular, and it's because it's got all these different unique farms that it sources from. So it's got all these different expressions um, that are really interesting to explore. I don't know if that's kind of a, a gateway mezcal. The one that my friend owns, in, uh, based in uh, LA, is called Yola, and it's a a family recipe. Yola's um, father, I believe, started the brand. He worked um, in um, 
at the region, one of the, the main regions for mezcal production, they have a farm there and he was a farmer at first and then actually got into mezcal production and, um, they, he created a brand and now, now she's keeping it going. Um, he created a recipe and she made it into a brand actually. So Yola is one. And then that, that Delmaguer, um, it, whatever you can find in, in that one, they're really interesting, unique, um, products from all these different farms. So it's mezcal tends to be more of a small production versus what you might see with tequila then. For for right now, I, I do believe that with the popularity of it, where we will start seeing, you know, larger scale production facilities getting into the, the, the scene. I am aware of at least one very large scale um, mezcal production facility. So I think it's likely going to be what happened with bourbon, where there's this monster distillery and you're going to have, you know, lots of brands, um, tens, maybe hundreds of brands that are going to the, these facilities to source product and, and all going in and different labels with this, with the same juice. So, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately I I could, I can see that ahead for mezcal, but hopefully because of the way that, that people are getting excited about the small, um, artisan, um, nature of it, that they'll be more aware of where their products are coming from and, and support the, these, um, these small farms. So before, before I let you go, I want to, to give you a, a bourbon challenge that I've given a few other guests. So this is, um, you, you're issued a hundred dollars and you're dropped off at a well-stocked liquor store. What, do you come out with you can you can choose bourbon or rye and you can get two or three bottles but they need to be mm. something regu- semi regularly available so you know you're not, Gosh, you're not gonna there's get so many i have just a hundred dollars yeah just a hundred dollars so we're talking about something uh-huh. commonly available that uh-huh. people could afford so that's that's the challenge of of what you yeah. come out with i think and it's it probably won't surprise many people. One of my favorite products in the world is uh, Woodford Reserve Double Oaked. Um, and when I go into a store, I like to see if they have their their own kind of store picks of, of these different types of things. Mm-hmm. So what I would yeah, probably and, and we'll allow, most we'll allow likely store come out. Picks, so. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd probably end up coming out with a, a store pick of, uh, of Woodford Double Oaked if, if they happen to have that on the shelf. There's just so many good products. I, I always try and, and um, look for the, the single barrels because I think that for me, having um, had access to single barrels as a distiller for so long, it's, I feel a little bit spoiled. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to drink a batch of anything. I, I get really <laughs> nerdy on the, on the unique flavors of, of in individual barrels. So that's where I gravitate. So, Add, add me one more bottle that's not brown foreman <laughs> <laughs> um let me think just one second what i would get really excited about we won't tell anybody so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> um i'm like 
visualizing a, a liquor store shelf right now. Do you, are you drawn to, to, to Turkey? Are you drawn to Buffalo Trace? I like Turkey. Heaven Hill? I do. I, I like Russell's Reserve. I like Heaven Hill products. Um, Buffalo Trace makes really good products. I just um, try to look for folks who are friends in the industry <laughs> also. Understandable. Um, mm-hmm. I appreciate that also, I stumped you so, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I mean, Kings County is is a, one of my go-tos also. But I think Russell's, I would go for like a Russell's Reserve rye if I was just going to go for mm, something okay. every day that's, you know, that I could um, maybe pick up a couple bottles with that $100 bill. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's There's a, also, that's a, I don't know, a barrel... There's one. Um, sorry, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna throw no, out another you, one because it just no, came to mind. Fine. Barrel bourbon. So the yeah, way that they uh-huh. they approach it is, um, you know, blending. I believe it's still under a hundred dollars, um, but they they're coming in into the market with some really unique things. It's it's a batch of barrels, but the way that they're right. doing it, um, they're getting some some really um, really wonderful expressions well, out and, of these and they're, barrels and they're that are. Really... Mm-hmm, they're blending from different, even different producers. So it's not just a, a yep. single batch of, of one distillery, but it's, they're, they're bringing different things together. Yeah, exactly. And there seems, there seems to be a little bit of a trend of that. I mean, that's, I guess, similar what maybe to what uh, something like Dixon Deadman's doing with Kentucky Owl and, um, and, and maybe some others, but uh, it's, an, I think it's a great way a, to stand apart. Yeah, it's a blending approach. Well, you're relying on your on your skill as a blender, which is a, I would think would be a, a challenging skill to develop well. Um, That's very true. Just to, to get everything to balance out, um, to to make it work. I appreciate you being on Eat Kentucky, and I hope uh, maybe if I can catch you in Kentucky, we can sit down for an interview sometime. Yeah, I would love that, Alan. You can find links to Marianne Eve's website and social media, as well as a link to her Broadway TED Talk and show notes. You definitely need to watch it. Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes, and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky, where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett. I just the the cutest baby in the world just showed up and, and oh. they came out the door and peeked at me so I had to smile oh, I got distracted no, no problem um, at all <laughs>